So I'm going to give you two messages today. Two for the price of one. You go, that's not fair. (laughs) No, I do want to share a little bit about the vision of Hope Church just for a minute. Uh, Whether you're new to Hope or you've been here for a long time. Uh, As I was thinking about this, as we come to the end of our fiscal year, we move into a new fiscal year. I was thinking, why do we exist? What's the point? What's the purpose? Why, why, why do we gather together? Where are we going? And one of the illustrations that, uh, that I thought of was, um, some of you have been on carnival cruises, right? Though the cruises have had kind of a bad record lately, haven't they? They're crashing and getting... It's, just assume a good cruise, all right? But, you know, the carnival cruise is one of those things where you get on the boat and everything's there, right? You, you, you have, and the, the crew is there to just dawdle on you and just to take care of your every need. And if you go to a port, you're there to kind of experience it and enjoy it, right? It, it, the, whatever port you go to, it's there for you. The boat, the people on the boat are there to serve you. It's a carnival cruise. I don't know if you've heard of mercy ships. Mercy ships are usually second-hand boats that uh, organizations uh, purchase. Mercy ship is one of those organizations. They purchase uh, older boats. They fix them up. And they basically stock them with doctors and medical supplies. And uh, they'll have optometrists. They'll have dentists. They'll have just all sorts of medical teams and other uh, support teams. And they go, and they're on a mission too. And uh, they're there to go to ports, and they go to ports that no one else goes to. They're not the pretty ports. They're not the beautiful ports. They're the ports that no one would go to. They're the ports where the underprivileged are, where the poor are, where the hurting are, where the blind, where the lame are. And they go there to serve the people there. The whole mercy ship thing is about people who are on this mission. And if you're on a mercy ship, you're not there for yourself though there are benefits of serving other people, you're not there for yourself. You're there for the people you're going to minister to. You're part of a team. You're ready when you hit the port to begin to serve. And you serve one another on the team. There are churches that are carnival cruises. And there are churches that are mercy ships. This is not a carnival cruise. If you're looking for a carnival cruise, don't know what other churches are doing in town, we're not a carnival cruise. We're a mercy ship. We're on a mission. We have a mission that there are people in this community that need to hear the gospel, that need to be ministered to, that need to be loved, that need to be helped, and need to be encouraged. They need to know who God is. They need to know who Jesus Christ is. They need to find hope. They need to find joy. They need to find healing. They need to find purpose. And we have a gospel that will do that. So if you want to be part of a mercy ship, you're in the right place. If you want to be part of a carnival cruise, yeah, that's probably not going to go real well. (laughs) So I just thought I would share. That's kind of how I think I view Hope Church and I think our staff and our elders and most of our key leaders view it. We're on a mercy ship. And we're called to the port of Dubuque to minister to our city and our tri-state area. 
And so that's the mission we're on, and I hope you'll join us for that. All right, that's the end of the first message, all right? Here's the one that uh, we're going to talk about in Genesis. So the passage we're going to look at this weekend, it kind of ends a section of the book of Genesis. Genesis is really broken down into two sections, the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 talk about four great events. The creation, the fall, the tower, or creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. Okay? So the creation of man, the fall of man, the flood, and the tower of Babel. We're going to look at the tower of Babel today. Genesis 12 through 50 talk about four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All right? That's where we're going to be next week. We're going to start talking about Genesis chapter 12, which is absolutely a key chapter. Probably the two most important chapters in the book of Genesis are Genesis 1 and 2, probably 1, 2, and 3, and chapter 12. Those are key. Okay, those are, if you understand those, you understand not only a lot about the book of Genesis, but you understand a lot about the Old Testament because it really sets the page. It sets the trajectory, right? I hope I don't say that tomorrow because I know I'll say it wrong. I'll say trajectory wrong tomorrow somehow. But anyway, uh, what we're going to look at, the passage we're going to look at today is that if we're not careful, we'll create God in our own image. And I think that may be one of the biggest problems we have in the church today, that, that we've created God in our image We've made him manageable to us. We made him like almost human, and we're missing out on who God is. I think one of the greatest things that we could do is say we're, we need to get a, re- idea, a bigger idea, a better idea of who God is. So we'll, we will be in Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 1. It's on page 9 of the chair Bible. I hope you'll turn there and follow along with me. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. It's on page 9. Let me start at verse 1 of chapter 9. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of, Babel, in the land of Babylon, Babylonia, and they settled there. They began to say to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from scattering all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse the people with different languages then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. And this is why, that is why the city is called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. Now, I want to clear up a few misconceptions we have about this passage in the Tower of Babel. First off, if you start reading chapter 10, you have a genealogy. And genealogies are tricky things 
Um, there, there, there are people that used to think that genealogies were like the way we do it. I mean, we go back and we know, okay, my grandmother was here and her parents were here, and, and that's how we do genealogies. That's not how they did genealogies. That's not, that's not what the lists are. The lists are literary devices. But there is a purpose behind them. Now, the purpose wasn't to list every family member in these genealogies. That's not the purpose. I know that's our purpose, but see, when we take our purpose today and we read it back, then we're not going to understand what the original writer and the original audience intended. The author, though, what they're doing here is they're telling us how the, the people of the day, and this would be the people of Moses' day, while they're in the wilderness, because Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and it would have been during the Exodus that all of this, they would have heard about the, the Genesis account, uh, because Moses was the, the author of the fir- first five books of the, uh, the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses was the author. Moses lived most of his life as he exited the people out of the land. So all those books would have been written during that time. Genesis would have been one of those. But the point of this genealogy in chapter 10 is so that all the known people would know how the sons of Noah were related. How the known peoples of their day in the land were related to Noah. And we talked about the Canaanites. Remember, we talked about the Canaanites. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, we can assume, because it, uh, some people assume that all the people in the world, this is referring to all the people in the world, and that's another modern thing that we do. It says, well, it says all. In fact, um, in some translations, it says all the earth. It's used five times in nine verses. And so the modern reader, us, we say, well, that, <clears throat> that means it's a universal statement. But probably what's more likely is this is the all, all the known world in that time around them. So it would be the Mesopotamia area or the Mesopotamia region. So it's all the people groups in the Mesopotamia region, not necessarily all the people in the world at that moment. Number three, the people, this tower that they're building, uh, some people wonder, well, what was it and what were they building? And, and probably it was uh, they were constructing a ziggurat. Now, that basically is similar to a pyramid, okay? It would be similar to a pyramid, uh, but it had a different function than the Egyptian pyramids. And we're in the Babylonian, uh, the Mesopotamia region, not in Egypt, okay? So a l- little bit about the, uh, the ziggurats. Uh, they, were de- they were dedicated to deities. So a deity might have uh, several, several ziggurats uh, uh, dedicated to them. So you, uh, one deity might have five ziggurats or whatever, dedicated to them. And archaeologists have unearthed about 30 of these in the uh, Mesopotamia region. I'm gonna, th- this all seems very tedious, but it's going to make sense when we get there, and it, knowing this groundwork will help us to understand the passage in the long run. The main archaeological feature of the ziggurat was a stairway or a ramp. Now, it was not a stairway for man to get to heaven, or to get to the other world, it was for the gods of the other world to get to this place, to this world. Okay, it, it was it was a stairway to earth. It was for the deity or the god. Now, at the top of the ziggurat, there was a small room with a bed and a table. Isn't that interesting? They found 
like these with beds and tables at the top. So apparently, when they came down to the top of the ziggurat, they could rest before they came down the stairs to visit humans. At least that was the view. Um, Now, at the bottom was a temple. And that was where God would hopefully receive their offerings. Now, these gods were pretty moody. It's like the Greek gods. You, you know, they could go off on you, and if they went off on you, it was not good news, right? And so, essentially, you, you tried to appease them with gifts and offerings. Uh, but the most important function of the ziggurat was to travel from one realm to another. So in this case, it would be between earth and the netherworld. At the top of the gate of, of the gods, there was an entrance into the, the heavenly abode, and at the bottom was the temple. So the Tower of Babel project was probably, most probably, a temple complex fe- featuring a ziggurat, which was designed or to make it convenient for God to come down from his other world to uh, the earth, okay, to dwell with man, to receive worship from people and to bless them. So the question is, what was wrong with building the tower? Okay, so it seems as though God looked down and says, okay, we got to stop this. Okay, why? Why did God say that? There's two answers that scholars usually give as to why, that, that, that what's going on here. Number one, some scholars say, well, they're showing off, they're showing their pride, they're thinking they could build a tower to reach to their to reach God, they're haughty, and God has to slap them down a little bit. And the way he's going to do it, he's going to confuse their languages, and, and that's going to be the thing. And essentially, they're, they're, they're saying, in a, it says in the passage we read in verse 4, we'll make a name. We'll have a reputation for ourselves. We'll make our name great. And some people say, well, that's, that's the problem. But, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that's the case because when we come to... Uh, Genesis chapter 12, what does God say about Abraham? I'll make your name great. So, it, I don't know if that fits well. The second view that people take is that the people are not uh, filling the earth as God commanded. In, in 128, Genesis 1.28, God says, go fill the earth. You know, be, be fruitful and multiply. He says the same thing in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7. And, but the people are afraid of scattering. They're afraid of, of going out and populating the earth. So they remain together. So consequently, they, they say that hold this view they're disobeying god by building a tower in this city in the tower and the problem is that they're not obeying god's command now what's god's command his command had nothing to say with you need to go out and distribute yourself as much as it said multiply well i think they're multiplying and i don't think that's the problem uh they were just doing it in a centralized location there's nothing in scripture that says you have to spread out now you know, it just says multiply, and they're doing that. So what, what, why does God scatter them? Why does he scatter them? And he does this through changing their languages so they can't communicate, and they naturally would, would gravitate towards those who spoke their language, and so that happened. I think the same thing is going on, you find, in chapter 13 of Genesis. Let me read, that's on page 11. You might want to follow along with me in this. So this is Abraham, or Abram, and he's going to become Abraham, and his, his nephew Lot. This is what it says. So verses 1 and 2 says this. So Abraham left Egypt and traveled north 
into the Negev, uh, along with his wife and Lot, and all they owned. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had become very wealthy with flocks of sheep, goat and goats, and herds of cattle, and many tents. Go down to verse 5 and 6. Maybe I jumped down there already and I don't even know it. But the land could not support them both, Abram and Lot, with their flocks and herds living so close together. It's very... It's, it's so it's very likely that this is what's going on around the tower that God sees that their the land and the, you know we can live in, you know you can we can be densely populated today because we have things called sewage systems and we have water and we have you know ways of building where we can you know really pack people in but in those days it was an agrarian society and so they needed land so what God it seems what what God is doing here is he's causing them to spread out for their own good, in a sense. God is doing this so they will survive. So probably the land and uh, them being together is not going to work, so he's spreading them out and he's using language to do that. So it's probably not a pride thing. It's probably not a violation that they're not obeying this be fruitful and multiply. It's probably God saying you need, they're going to need to spread out. But the question is, there is an offense going on with the ziggurat. There is a, there's something else going on with Babylon, and that's what I want to look at. And that's why I spent so much time talking about why, what was the significance of the ziggurat, all right? Uh, what was the, uh, I'll call it a, you know, a pyramid. There's something else going on here. And uh, as we look at the pyramids of the ziggurats, they reveal, especially the Babylonian ones in the Mesopotamian area, they reveal something about how we approach God. What is going on here is very interesting. People began to envision God, the gods, in human terms, in human ways. Notice they had a bed and a dresser and a table. Uh, you know, they had, they had this at the top. They had, they, 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 they had, it had human things. And, and basically what's going on here is they're introducing paganism. They were making the, the uncommon common. They were making the supernatural natural. They were making the divine human. In other words, they were saying God's just like us. God's just like us. In other words, people were no longer seeking to be God. That's, that was the lie that, 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 that uh, the, the, the enemy said to Adam and Eve. When you eat, you'll be like God. They're no longer being, trying to be like God. They're seeking to, they're seeking to bring God down to their level, level of fallen humanity. In other words, they're basically coming to a place where they're saying, we need to get our handle on God, so let's make Him into our own image so that we can better understand him. Now, that may not seem like such a dire thing, but when we look at the gods around them and, and why these ziggurats were made, the gods were seen as needy, just like humans. God wasn't almighty, all-knowing. He was weak and could be manipulated. The gods needed to be fed. They needed to be clothed. They needed to be housed. That's why they built these things for them. They were helping them out. And the point I want you to see is this, and this is where it really where the rubber meets the road for us. And I know I spent a lot of time getting there, but I think if we get there, we'll see. If we have a distorted view of God, like they did, we're in big trouble. Now, of course, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus, God, took on human flesh so that we can even begin to comprehend Him. 
comprehend him. But without Jesus taking on human flesh, we, have, uh, we misunderstand who God is. God responds from heaven. Note what he says. He says, this is, this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose will now be impossible to them. Uh, in other words, well, I think what God's saying here is he's saying they're moving further and further away from understanding who I am. They're now developing their own image of God. They're, own, they're developing and creating their own way of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and, and I want you to turn there to this passage because I think essentially this is, this is the picture of paganism. And paganism is, is not to be, I'm not using it in a pejorative way. I'm not trying to be in a negative way. I'm not trying to say we're better than they are. That's not what I'm saying. But I think paganism is this idea where we have this, this uh, watered-down view of who God is. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. This is on page 857. <clears throat> because this is, I think, what's happening in the Genesis chapter of 11. This is what's happening. So Genesis chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verse 23. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God, even or even give Him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God must be like. Let's put a bed up there. Let's put a dress as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. If you jump to the book of Exodus, when, when Moses is on the mountain getting the law, God is meeting with Moses face to face on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's getting the law. The people go, where's Moses? When is he going to come back? It's taking a long time. What should we do? Aaron, we should make a calf. A golden one. (laughs) You see, it doesn't take long before we begin to make our our own image of God. So in that sense... We all show pagan tendencies. Now, maybe you're here and you said, I don't believe that. I don't believe I show any pagan tendencies in my life. I don't believe I'm creating God in my own image. I believe in the Bible and what the Bible says about God. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. When we try to manipulate God by praying in Jesus' name to achieve our selfish purposes, we say, if I just use that in Jesus' name formula, He's on the hook. He has to answer this one. Have you ever done that? We claim promises as a means of holding God hostage to, to, uh, to our interpretation of the Word. So we claim a verse as a, as a, as a promise verse, and we say, this is God's promise, and, and, and God has to do it, and that because I've interpreted the verse this way. So therefore, that must... let me give you one. I'll give you one. I'll give you a common one the parents use. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. And parents have claimed that as a promise. And then their kids depart and they go, God, what did you do? (laughs) Right? We think ourselves to be independent or indispensable to God because we give our money and our time and our talent. We say, God, you need me. You need my money. You need my time. I'm doing you a big favor. When I give in the offering, I'm doing you a big favor. When I give my time, I'm doing you a big I hope you're keeping track of this because I sure am. 
Like paganism, we treat God like a child that must be uh, cajoled or a tyrant that must be appeased. And when bad things happen in our lives, we say, God, where were you? After all I've done for you, how dare you? Or we fear God and say, well, I better. I've heard people say this. I probably have said it myself. I better not do that because if I do that, God might be mad at me. I talk to people all the time say, I think God's angry with me. What would you do? Well, I sinned. Right? We want to harness His power with no strings attached. Right? We give money to this ministry and claim the promises of God so that we'll get... And this is the one that, that bugs me a lot. Where pastors and preachers get up there and say, you give your money to this ministry, you give this much, and God is required to multiply it. And, you know, that's a bunch of garbage. It's paganism. We condemn those who suffer from cancer or AIDS or other physical or mental ailments as indications of lack of faith or divine judgment. We judge God. We say, this person, if they had enough faith, God would heal them. And God doesn't heal them. You say, well, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You just didn't have enough faith. As though we manipulate God. As though He's got to give us everything we ask for. Let me ask you a question. If you have children, do you give them everything they ask for? If you do, you're a horrible parent. Sorry, if you do, I didn't mean to insult you, but you are a horrible parent, okay? There, was that nicer the second time around? (laughs) No, seriously. I mean, sometimes God doesn't say... You know, there's many times that God just doesn't say yes. We question God's goodness when we watch suffering in the world and we blame Him. I get so tired of Christians blaming God for floods and stuff like that. As though God is a direct cause for every natural disaster that's ever happened on the earth. I don't read that in my Bible. We turn our back on God when somebody close to us dies. We say, God, I pray that you would heal them. You didn't heal them. That's it. I'm done with you. That's paganism. That's a limited view of who God is. That's the view that says, I can manipulate you. I can get you to do whatever I want you to do. and You have to do it. And we're like a whiny little child. I believe one of the greatest deficiencies in the church today is that we have a seriously defective view of God. An inadequate view. You say, I believe that God is all-powerful. Really? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing? Most of us would say, absolutely. Did your life prove that this week? Did your life prove that when you found out you didn't have enough money to pay a bill and you go, what am I going to do? This is a disaster. It's a mess. He said, wait, wait a minute. You're all, God's all-powerful and knowing. He knows this. He's going to take care of me. Do I believe that? Or don't I believe that? Well, how do we overcome this defective view of God? Very simply, I'll give you a few things and we'll close. Number one, you need to begin daily to read the Bible. Not to get a mystical thought for the day. So many Christians go say, okay, God, I need a good one today. Boom, there it is, you know. <laughs> no, no. That's not, that's not the way we're supposed to use the Bible. 
somebody has said that the Bible, some Christians use the Bible like a newspaper horoscope, giving us clues to what we should or should not do. And they're always out of context, all right? Here's what I want you to do. Read the Bible this week with one task to discover who God is. Begin and say, God, show me who you are this week. Show me, how, what do I need to know about you? What can I learn about you this week? What is he like? What does he desire? You, you see, the, the Bible's not about us. It's about him. It's about him. When you read, and I'm going to get there, I think. Let me just see if I have that in my notes. I do, so I won't go there yet. Uh, So, the point I want you to see is, as you discover who God is and bring our lives into orbit within His universe, we begin to learn about life and we begin to understand who He is. The biggest problem we have is that we don't know God and whatever we do know about God, we don't obey it. That's our biggest problem. That's where worry comes from. That's where anxiety comes from. That's where anger comes from, black goals. It all comes mainly from that. We have, a, we have a midget, small, inadequate view of God. We have a, in, just a totally inadequate view of God. Because we've made God into our own image. And then when God doesn't fit our image, we get angry with Him. And God's going, I'm sorry. I did. That's not who I am. Don't You know, when I was a... <clears throat> When I was a kid, and I have five brothers, I know you get tired of hearing this, but um, I was in the middle. And there were times that one of my brothers would, and I did it too, boneheaded, stupid things. And my mom, a couple of times, started just yelling at me for something my brother Pat did. And I said, I'm not Pat. Okay, I'm Matt. Remember me? I came after Pat, Pat, then Matt. I'm Matt. He's Pat. Yell at him. And many times what we're doing is we're yelling at God and God's going, I'm sorry. That's not me. You made an image of me, but that's not me. If we understand who God is, but fail to... See, here's the balance we have to have. And Christians are at one end of this continuum. See, we have to not only understand who God is, but we have to obey what we know about Him, okay? So if we understand who God is, but we fail to follow His Word, we'll never impact our choices, values, attitudes, and lifestyle. In other words, if we say, I have a clear view of who God is, but I'm totally in disobedience to what I know, then we'll never, we'll never change. The opposite is true. If we have a strong commitment to God... Like we're absolutely committed to God, but we suffer from an inadequate view of God, then we will approach life and others sincerely wrong and we'll do a lot of harm. There's a lot of really sincere Christians out there that just have no clue about who God is and they're as sincere as ever. I want you to read your Bible this week in a different way. I want you to read it and ask this question. How does this passage help me to understand God better? And you say, God, I want to know you. 
I want to understand you. I want to read one last passage, and I'd love you to turn there if you would. Some of it will be up on the screen, but uh, I would love you to read. This is John chapter 20, uh, page 828, and this is the last verse we're going to look at. And I want to give you the context. John wrote his gospel, and basically what John is saying in his gospel is this. By the way, if you're not reading through the Bible, John's gospel is a great place to start for this reason. And so you ask the question every day. You read John 1 and say, God, show me who you are today. And that may be Jesus. Show me who you are today. Help me to understand who you are today. And you read chapter 1 and you say, okay, I understand this. I, now, can I obey what I need to obey about what I know? Okay. So John basically says in his gospel, he says, I could have put a whole bunch of miracles, signs, he calls them, in there. But I only included some. In other words, John says, I didn't use everything, but I used some. And the ones I used was for one purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you will have life forever. And so John writes this. This is John chapter 20, verse 30. This is the purpose of his letter, or his, his gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. In other words, John's saying, I've limited my uh, stories, my, my signs of Jesus. He says, but these are written so that you might continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. In other words, John is saying, I want you, as you read through here, to understand who Jesus is. And then as you understand who Jesus is, you'll find life. That's the purpose. That ought to be the purpose of why we read the Bible. God, show me who you are. Show me who you are. Because as I learn about who you are and I have a correct view of you, I will not, de- I will not make you human. I will not marginalize who you are. I will understand who you are. And when I understand who you are, then I will find my place in your universe and I will find who you are in my life. The problem that most of us have and the problem that most churches have is we have a too low a view of God. We don't understand Him. And we don't understand Him because we're not going to His Word that He's given to us and said, everything you need to know about me for now is revealed here. If you'll just look for it, you'll find me. He's here, waiting to be found, waiting to be understood. May the Word of God work in your life and in your heart this week so powerfully that your view of God, your image of God, will change and become what it is. And as you understand who He is, balance that with obedience to who He is. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, we have a tall order this week to rebuild to break down. We may have built ziggurats in our lives. Uh, We may have tried to humanize you or to make you into our own image, and we need to remake that image. We need to bust it up, and your word can do that. Help us to see who you are and to marvel and be amazed by you as we interact with your word this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.